All right, let's turn our Bibles once again to the 14th chapter of Mark's Gospel. And as we do so, I want you to think for a moment of a distressing time that you've experienced in your life. Something that caused you great dismay, emotional and mental upheaval, to the point of great physical discomfort. Perhaps you went through some kind of a betrayal, you lost a loved one, you faced a great disappointment, a broken relationship, maybe a serious illness that you passed through. Most of us know that such things affect our mind and our emotions and even our bodies, and we don't feel like eating, we can't sleep, we can't think about anything but that problem that we're facing. And we wonder if we'll ever get through the stress of it all. Sometimes it even causes us to think that we might not want to be alive any longer. At such times, we experience just a little bit of what Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. His soul was extremely distressed over what he must endure to procure our salvation. In our study of Mark's gospel, we have arrived at the point where Jesus must be betrayed into the hands of men. He and his disciples have met together for the last Passover meal. Jesus has broken bread with them. He's taken the communal cup, signifying his sacrificial death, and he sent Judas out to complete his dark mission of betrayal. Then he predicts that all the other disciples will stumble and be scattered before the night's through as well. And they all profess their loyalty, but the test of their claims approaches, and Jesus will be found true to his word. He has to suffer and die alone. Only he can bear the cross of our redemption. The passage before us is the first stage of Christ's suffering there in Gethsemane. We see Jesus in his full humanity, dreading death and his separation from God the Father, dreading the cup of God's wrath upon all the sins of humanity that were about to fall upon his shoulders alone. We cannot comprehend what that cup was like. And Mark's description is the closest we'll really ever get. So here we set foot on holy ground and with utmost wonder and respect for our Savior's suffering. So may we be humble this morning and awed by the events that are set before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again that the Word of God reveals your suffering for us. We're thankful, Lord, that although we are deserving of eternal death for the sins that we've committed, you loved us and sent your Son into the world to suffer and die in our place. He took upon himself the penalty of our sin. And as we see the beginning of that suffering this morning, may we again be uplifted with great praise and thank you much for what you've done. And Lord, if there's someone here who's not sure of their relationship to you, may they see very clearly why Jesus had to come and die. 
We ask these things in your name. Amen. The first thing I want you to look at this morning in the first paragraph that we read here is the deep distress of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And our narrative falls really into three scenes that are centered on Christ's prayer and the failure of the disciples to watch and pray with him. The first scene is the most lengthy. So we're going to spend some time here in verses 32 to 36. And there we see the deeply disturbed state of Jesus, which may surprise us. But we can't gloss over this. We have to look into the seriousness of what Jesus suffered. And first of all, we see in verse 32 that they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. So let's take a moment there and think about the significance of that place. After the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples headed toward the Mount of Olives, And at the foot of the mount was this olive grove called a garden in other places. It was located out the eastern wall of the city across from the Kidron Valley. And it was a place that they often uh, retreated for prayer. Judas would have been aware of this place. Now, Gethsemane means olive press, suggesting that an olive press was located there in that olive grove. And when the olives were harvested each year, they were placed in this press, a large bowl-like structure carved out of stone. And then another large stone would be there that they would lower onto the olives. They would be crushed and the oil that was so precious to them would ooze out and they would uh, contain it. Symbolically, think about Jesus being pressed to his human limits as he contemplates what must shortly take place over the next few hours. Only his communion with God will prepare him for that trial. Now, as they arrive here, Jesus separates from the disciples so that he can pray. He instructs them to sit down while he goes to another spot and comes before his heavenly father. And it could very well be that he intended for them to be alert, to stay awake, and be praying for him in this most difficult time. We also know that he takes that inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, a little bit farther with him, and then he separates from them a little bit and uh, begins to pray. But again, let's go back here to these three disciples. Why do you think he brought the three of them into closer contact with him. Well, we've already seen that these three have accompanied, accompanied him on other occasions, particularly that uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story? They witnessed the amazing event and heard God's blessing uh, from heaven upon his son, Jesus. <clears throat> now, they're going to be close enough to Jesus to at least hear portions of that prayer. That's why we have them recorded here. And uh, they are going to be witnesses to his agony, to what he went through, so that we can see somewhat of what Jesus bore for us. And you remember also that these three disciples have boasted their loyalty to Christ. 
James and John said they were able to drink the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. I don't think they knew what they were getting into when they said that. Peter claimed that even if all the other disciples uh, were offended at Jesus, that he would not. He would stand alone. So here's a chance uh, to test their bold claims. Are they going to be able to watch and pray with Jesus? Now, we then see the Lord Jesus himself entering the depths of distress in a way we've never seen in all the gospel story up to this point, beginning in the middle of verse 33. He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then down when he comes to his disciples in verse 34, he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. In each of uh, the, uh, the Lord Jesus then is asking them to stay near, to watch, no doubt with the idea of praying for him as he's conveying to them uh, this deep emotional distress. And again, we just kind of wonder if they really even caught on. Now, these three expressions convey to us the humanity of our Lord. The deep-seated distress he began to feel in his soul as the hour of his sacrifice was approaching. And only Mark uses the word troubled here, which conveys uh, an intense perplexity and alarm, even uh, touching on fear. Some have actually translated this as horror in relationship to what he is about to face. Distress indicates anxiety and deep anguish within. It's a word that sometimes could be translated as depressed. And you know that when people go through depression, they have thoughts of suicide. Uh, They want to end their life. Jesus is the point here where he is is so uh, distraught that he's at the point where he feels like he's just not going to make it through. It reminds us of David's distress recorded in Psalms 42 and 43 where he cried out, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? One commentator explained this in these words. The two verbs translated deeply distressed and troubled together describe an extremely acute emotion, a compound of bewilderment, fear, uncertainty, and anxiety nowhere else portrayed in such vivid terms as here. So Mark is conveying to us the the exceedingly deep sorrow Uh, and difficulty Christ was going through as a man, as a human, almost to the point of death. So he is overwhelmed with the grief and the crushing weight and sorrow of what was going to come upon him. Now, in this extreme testing, what does Jesus do? In his despair, in his consternation, well, he goes to his heavenly father, in verse 35. He goes a little bit farther. And imagine, in this state, 
when you are extremely upset, uh, oftentimes we just are like slumped. Our shoulders are sagging and we're just so upset. Uh, we, we can hardly stand up. And Jesus is walking a little bit farther away from them. And it says that he uh, fell on the ground prostrate before God. And he cries out to the Lord in this uh, situation. And as he does so, he cries out to God, Abba, Father. Now that's an Aramaic term a very endearing term, a term that uh, suggests very, uh, a very close relationship, often uses a child uh, to a father. Now, last night as we were sitting at dinner, little Sapphire was sitting next to Eric, and she latched onto his arm from time to time, and she says, Day, day, day. She wants this, she wants that. Well, that's kind of the idea of the, uh, of the word Abba, uh, the closeness, the, the trust, the looking up to. And this is what Jesus uses. Now, the Jews of that day would never use that term of God. They felt it was too intimate, too close. It would be re- disrespectful. But it shows the unique bond that Jesus had with God the Father as he uh, lived on this earth as his holy son. <clears throat> now, this wants a, uh, makes us want to think, What would cause Jesus, who is God in flesh as well as human being, what would cause his soul to go through this extremity? What would cause him to be uh, struck with such fear and consternation? Well, again, remember that he was truly human. He experienced the things that human beings experience uh, emotionally and mentally. And... uh, uh, he's the sustainer of, of physical life. He's the source of, of everlasting life. <clears throat> and he's going through these difficult, uh, um, this difficult time just realizing fully what he is going to go through, what his sufferings are going to be like. And this was a severe trial, perhaps the deepest trial he would ever experience, even worse than the devil himself tempting him in the wilderness. And I'm sure the devil was probably there, uh, maybe pounding him, so to speak, spiritually speaking. So he's going through this because he's a human being and he experiences the things that we experience. But then we have to remember something else here, and that is he knew he was about to face death. Now think about that. He is the son of God. He is the author of life. He's the light and the life of men. He brought life into the created world. He sustains physical life. He's the source of everlasting life to those who believe in him. But he has to die. He has to suffer that which is against his very nature. Then, not only that, he has to suffer a cruel, painful an ignominious death like a criminal. Not because he was sinful, he was perfectly sinless, but he has to die for depraved sinners who do not deserve God's mercy and grace. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, has to die 
to pay the penalty, the eternal penalty of your sins and mine and everybody else's who have ever lived in all time. Now, you know what? Most people uh, don't really even think about being a sinful creature. They don't contemplate that God would really judge them for their sin. Most people think that they're at least better than somebody else. But let's think about what sin is. And I'm basing this upon what the Bible says. Every time you take God's name in vain, you've sinned. Every day you go through that you do not put God first in your life, you've sinned. Every time you disobeyed your parents, that was sin. Every time you told a lie, every time that you took something that didn't belong to you, every time you said a hurtful word to somebody, every time you got angry without a cause, every time you put yourself above others, every time you felt pride over something, it's sin after sin after sin after sin. People don't even think about it because they're too proud to. If you sin only once a day for a lifetime of 75 years, that'd only be 27,375 cents. But multiply that by two, three, four, five, ten times. And then multiply those sins by the billions of people who have lived from creation until now. And you get just a little bit of the idea of why Jesus went through what he went through. All those sins of billions of people were laid on him. It's about to crush him because he had to pay the eternal punishment for all those sins, yours and mine with them. So the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Yet there's something else that must have been most crushing for Jesus. For timeless eternity, he and God the Father had perfect fellowship with each other. And now he has to bear the cup of God's wrath. He had to be forsaken by God the Father so we wouldn't be. Is it any wonder then that Jesus was thoroughly distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane? And again, we really can't grasp it all. So he calls upon his father in verse 36. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Is that possible? If you can do that, if there's another way, take the cup away. Jesus knew that God was the God of the impossible. If he could give the cup, there may be a way he could remove it, but sometimes that's not his will. And it wasn't possible for God to remove the cup of his wrath. There's no other way he could atone for the sins of humanity. A perfect life must be sacrificed for a sinful one, and Jesus was the only perfect one of all humanity of all time. But in this extremity where Jesus is wishing the cup could be removed from him, every time he comes to the Father, he says the same thing, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He submitted to the will of God to go through all this suffering. 
And this kind of uh, is drawn out for us in the book of Hebrews. And I just want to read a few verses to you because I think this is what these verses are alluding to. Hebrews discloses the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest who sacrificed himself for us. And beginning verse 7, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, son of God, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He obeyed God even in that extremity. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's talking about this suffering in the garden that Jesus went through. Now, the first scene closes with Jesus returning to find his three disciples, not waiting and praying, but sleeping. So they're really not disturbed a whole lot by his distress. And he addresses Peter in verse 37. Simon. Notice he doesn't say Peter. He says Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter, uh, identifying a rock-like character. But now he's talking to him as Simon. Are you sleeping? Could you not watch even one hour? You who are so bold and you who predicted that you would do so much on my behalf. So he's kind of chiding him because he finds him there sleeping. And then he says, probably to them all, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. So that means you need to be alert. You need to be wary. You need to be ready for the hour of temptation as Jesus was. And it also conveys the sense that we need to pray our way through these times knowing we cannot rely on ourselves to overcome in them. And when he says to enter into, that suggests falling to the temptation. It's not sin to be tempted. It becomes sin when you succumb to that temptation or you enter into it. You kind of like go through the door. And Peter and the others were warned before that they would stumble, that Peter would deny the Lord three times. It seems like maybe they would have been praying about that, that that would not happen to them. And the Lord reminds them and us that the spirit can be willing, but the flesh is often weak. We have a desire at times to do the right thing, We want to do the right thing, but we have to remember that the natural man is weak and has no real real power to resist temptation. We have to be watching, we have to be praying, we have to be depending upon our Heavenly Father, just as Jesus was. Now that brings us then to the next two scenes as Jesus returns to his disciples again, finding them all sleeping. And in verse 39, Again, he went away and prayed. He spoke the same words. And these are recorded in uh, Matthew's gospel. Pretty much the same thing as what Jesus has already done. So he returns to the place of struggle 
uh, with a cup that he has to bear. When he comes back, he finds them sleeping again. We have to realize it's been a long day for them. Uh, a lot of activities going on through the day. They, they had that meal with Jesus, which was perplexing again, and some of the things that were happening. It's likely now after midnight, maybe well after midnight, and they're weary. And we would have fallen asleep too, I imagine. But the disciples, this time, they're so alarmed that they, they really can't say anything. Um, <clears throat> down in verse 39, uh, he went and prayed and spoke the same words. When he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, they did not know what to answer him. And sometimes we know what that is. We got caught doing something wrong. We, we have nothing to say because... We know we're wrong, we know we flubbed up, and, you know, saying something might just make it worse. So they're, they're quiet. Only Mark mentions that this happened a third time. Jesus returns to prayer, he comes back, and uh, again he finds them sleeping in verse 40. Found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know uh, what to answer him. He came the third time, verse 41, and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the Lord Jesus has submitted to the will of God in this deep trial, this deep struggle. And the Lord has answered, the hour has come upon them. And Jesus now says, the time has arrived, the fulfillment is here. So he tells them to get up, uh, not to run away, not to flee, but now to confront the Lord's enemies as they enter the garden to take the Lord Jesus. So beginning in verse 30, uh, 43, we have this scenario, the disturbing arrest of Jesus and Gethsemane. So let's take a look at that as well. We see three things here. First of all, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is identified by his betrayer in verses 43 to 45. And immediately, this is again one of Mark's terms, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So this crowd was sanctioned by the religious enemies of Jesus. Priests uh, were supposed to lead the people in the true worship of God. Scribes were supposed to teach them the spirit of the law as much as the letter of the law. Elders were the civil leaders of the people, and this group uh, of, of men should really have been the first to receive Jesus and understand who he was, but they had consistently been rejecting him. And also present with them uh, were uh, temple guards and some Ro Roman soldiers wielding their, their clubs and swords like Jesus was going to... Uh, not uh, uh, not resist arrest or something. Well, a prearranged signal has been agreed upon to identify Jesus in verse 44. Now his betrayer, who was Judas, had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away 
safely. Well, the word safely there may, may make us think that, well, you know, take him away, be careful not to hurt him or harm him, but actually that means to secure him, you know, tie him up uh, so that he can't get away and lay hand, hands on him, seize him. So again, the, the, the terminology that Judas uses doesn't really indicate that he knew him very well because Jesus would not really um, resist the arrest. So Judas's actions now, they really kind of heighten his treachery. He first comes to Jesus, he addresses him as rabbi. And rabbi means master or teacher, someone you look up to, someone you follow closely, someone you honor. But Judas is now totally betraying that relationship. Then he kisses Jesus on the cheek, and that was to identify him from the others who were there. That wasn't an unusual act in those days because it was a form of greeting in that culture. And it signified friendship and kinship and sometimes even devotion as a master servant or a master teacher relationship with his followers. So Judas, again, is revealing by these things his hypocrisy, his treachery of the Lord Jesus. Then the Lord Jesus is arrested by those enemies. In verse 46, the guards laid their hands on them. That means they grabbed him, they took him. We're told elsewhere they tied up, tied him up. And meanwhile, there's this feeble attempt on the part of one of the disciples in verse 47 to resist. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who this person was, but John does in his gospel. Can you guess who that might have been? Peter. Yeah, you know, it was Peter. Uh, good old uh, uh, Peter, who was impetuous and obviously didn't know how to use a sword very well because he missed his mark, uh, or, or either the, the, the servant uh, evaded the fatal blow and, and it cut off his ears. John tells us that Jesus healed the man, uh, but again, uh, Peter acts rashly. But the main point we want to see here is how Jesus addressed these people who came to arrest him. And in verse 48, it says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? So they're, they're treating Jesus like he was some kind of a criminal, and he reminds them, look, I was in the temple daily teaching. I was out there in front of everybody. I wasn't hiding anything I had to say. Uh, and you didn't seize me then. So what does this reveal about them? Well, it reveals their cowardice, their fear of the people, their desire to hide this and keep it in the dark so that nobody knows until the last minute and then it'll be too late. And of course, Jesus was not a robber. This word became uh, used a little later as an insurrectionist. But you remember as you go through the story here, Jesus will be exchanged for a real robber named Barabbas. Jesus was no criminal, but he knows that the scriptures have to be fulfilled. Well, the final scene is that the Lord Jesus is abandoned by those disciples in verse 50. Then they all forsook him and fled, just as he said they would. 
just as he had prophesied. Well, what else could they do? They could not really defend Jesus. And when the fire hit the fan, well, they all took off. They all ran. And it's no surprise to us because Jesus said, that's what's going to happen. But then the scene closes with another kind of strange event in verses 51 and 52. Here's another seeming follower of Jesus, a young man. And after all this takes place and they're off to uh, the trials, this person's following Jesus. He's got a a linen outer garment, maybe kind of like uh, sleeping clothes. And uh, he begins to follow but the young men who were with the, the crowd that took Jesus turned on him. They laid hold of him. And in the ruckus, he somehow escapes, but uh, they grabbed his cloth and he runs away with no clothes on. Well, there's all kinds of uh, contemplation who this person was. I don't know, so I'm not going to throw my uh, hat in there. But I think what we're being told here by Mark is whoever this was, every last follower of Jesus fled. And the idea of nakedness often means shame, and it may be conveying to us that the shame of them abandoning the Lord Jesus. But that's the way it had to be. That's the way Scripture said it would be. He has to bear that cross alone, And they, his disciples, have to be preserved for their later mission after Jesus is raised from the dead. So let's think about some things we take away from the Lord's suffering there in Gethsemane. First of all, again, we see Jesus as the Son of Man, who experienced deep human distress as he faced the reality of bearing the wrath of God in our place. So uh, he knows by experience our sufferings, what we bear from time to time. And as, again, the author of Hebrews tells us, he's our faithful high priest. He understands what we go through because he went through it. It says there in Hebrews, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. And in another place, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the Lord Jesus is there to help us in our times of need, unlike the disciples who weren't there to help him in his time of need. And then we're again clearly reminded that Jesus suffered. He did so for your sake and for mine. He had no sin of his own to pay for. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, yet he was willing to bear the just wrath of God on our sin. That's why he went through so much anguish in Gethsemane, and that's why the greatest sin is to reject him as Judas and those religious leaders did. And that's why you ought to receive Jesus as your Savior from eternal death. So have you done that? What are you going to do about that? 
And finally, the flight of the disciples is not the end of their story. All those who abandoned or denied Jesus, they're going to repent, they're going to return to him, they're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that will come later on, and uh, they will stand against the very people who arrested Jesus and put him on trial. And we too may fail the Lord from time to time, but he's always going to bring us back into fellowship as we repent from those sins and we turn back to him. So there's much encouragement there in this story where Jesus suffered so deeply. Our Heavenly Father, we're again thankful for your word today. We're thankful for what Jesus suffered for our sake. Lord, help us to see again that we are guilty sinners before a just and holy God. There are many things that we do that are wrong, and oftentimes we don't even think about it, but Lord, help us to compare ourselves to the truth of your word. Help us to realize that there's only one way to escape the penalty of those sins, and that's by putting our faith and trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. So if there's someone here, Lord, who's not sure of their relationship to you, uh, help them to understand what you've done to save them out of your mercy and your grace. Help us as your people, Lord, who are often feeble, often tempted, sometimes we fail. And Lord, help us always to be calling upon your name when we go through the difficulties and trials of life, realizing that Jesus has been there, he understands, and he will help us through. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.